Well, it's good to see you this morning, each of you. Appreciate you being here and coming out on such a wet day to worship God with us here at White Oak. If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 11, we're going to notice verses uh, 39. I, I put the wrong passage up there. It's going to actually be 39 through 44. John 11, 39 through 44. John records, Jesus said, Take ye away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus saith unto her, Said I not unto thee that if thou wouldst believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound about with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. There was a man years ago by the name of Harry Rimmer. Harry Rimmer was an American creationist and he was a scientist. He lived between the years of 1890 and 1952. He was among the first to use scientific principles to prove the inerrancy of the Bible. As a child, he grew up in severe poverty. He uh, lived in mining and lumber camps throughout Northern California. Ultimately, he had to drop out of school before completing the third grade to work in an effort to help his family uh, survive. Well, at the age of 19, he joined the Army. He learned how to box, became a skilled boxer, and when he got out of the Army, he went to medical school. Now, he was able to go to medical school because while living in those lumber camps and those mining camps, some of the mining engineers took young Harry Rimmer under their wings and they taught him the basic principles of science. And so he fell in love with science. And having the opportunity to go to medical school, he did that, supporting himself by prize fighting. Well, ultimately, again, he had to drop out of school because he could not afford the uh, the cost of school, but it was there that he began to really understand the deeper principles of science. Of course, later on in his life, he was able to attend college. He went to the Bible College of San Francisco. He went to Whittier College and the Bible College of Los Angeles, now known as Biola. And there, he became very interested in the evolutionary hypotheses, the idea of evolution. He began to study that idea, began to look at it, and he began to understand that it just could not possibly be the facts that they said it was. Later on in his life, he enrolled in the University of Colorado where he got his doctorate degree in geology. Now, Mr. Rimmer was referred to as a rare combination of scientist and successful evangelist. But he knew, and he had gained the knowledge, 
that the creation of this world was not what science said it was. And so he began to travel the world and lecture upon why the evolutionary hypotheses could not possibly be correct. And in his doing that, he had the opportunity to meet many of the world's leaders. On one such occasion, he was in Egypt and he met the Secretary of State there. In talking to the Secretary of State, he said that Christianity, those who adhere to Christianity, we believe God has presented Himself to man in three ways. And, of course, the the official who was a Muslim, he said, we also believe that. Remember said, we believe God presented Himself to us through general creation. The Muslim agreed with that. He said, we also believe that. He said, we believe that God has revealed Himself to us in a book called the Bible. The Muslim said, we also believe that God has revealed Himself to us through a book, and we call it the Quran. Finally, Mr. Rimmer said, God has revealed Himself to us in the man Jesus Christ. He said, also we believe that. That God revealed Himself to us through a man, the great prophet Muhammad. Well, Rimmer looked at the man. He said, we believe that Jesus can substantiate His claim to deity because He rose from the grave and He sits at this very hour at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Upon hearing that, the Muslim looked down, his eyes cast to the ground, and he said, we have no information concerning our great prophet after his death. So when we look at the idea of someone being the foundation of Christianity, what is that foundation of Christianity? It has to be the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It has to be His substantiation that He was who He said He was, that He was murdered, that He rose again, walked out of a dead man's tomb alive. But I don't believe it stops there. I don't think that is only the only foundational principle that we can find in Christianity. I believe that Another principle that is close to Christianity, close to the very heart of those who claim to be followers of Christ and His disciples, is the very fact that every man and woman who ever wants to be in heaven with Jesus eternally has to walk out of a dead man's tomb himself or herself. We have to be able to do that. That was the example set forth by us. The New Testament teaches us, and we're going to notice a few of these things, That salvation is definitely a gift from God. It was given to us freely. But along with that salvation, there are some conditions that have been attached to it. God has conditionally granted salvation to people. When Christ's life is studied, we realize that the few times that He gave the gift of physical life to those who had gone on into death the physical life of them coming back was not His primary purpose. Yes, He brought them back to life. And as we read out through His uh, uh, biography of this world, He raised very few people that are recorded for us from death. So I don't believe that that was His main purpose. If we base Christ's actions in this world upon who He raised from the grave physically... He failed in His mission. 
Think about it. Those people that he brought back, then did they not die again? Sure they did. They went through that dying process again. So it couldn't have been his purpose. When we begin to look at what he did, it doesn't take a whole lot of insight to understand a few things. He came to the world for far nobler purpose than to bring people back from the grave, physically speaking. He had a greater mission in mind. He came to resurrect the spiritual dead. That's what He wanted. He wanted everyone with whom He came into contact and everyone that would later on read and hear about Him and worship Him, He wants them to be in heaven with Him. But He wasn't the only person who ever brought life to a dead man, was He? No, we we read about prophets who raised people from the dead, but He is the only one who can bring spiritual life. He's the only one that can bring a spiritually dead person back to life. Or to give them life initially. If one is going to be saved from sin, he or she must participate in the process that Jesus Christ has set forth. I want us to notice and learn a few things from this process, in this passage. First of all, the whole time that Jesus ever raised someone from the dead or healed them, they were never a healthy individual. They were sick, dying, or about to die. The people that He healed physically. The people that He brought back. He never brought a live person back from the grave, did He? Well, that's not necessary. That's not His purpose. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to bring life to the dead. He didn't bring back someone who was healthy. I want us to notice that he dealt with sickness. That's our first point. He dealt with sickness. As we look at this account of Lazarus, Lazarus was sick. How do we know that? He was declared to be sick. It was declared to the Lord that he was sick. He's declared to us that we live in a sin-sick world, that we can become sick from sin, and that we need to be saved from that. Well, it was declared to him that Lazarus was sick. John recorded... He said, now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha, John 11.1. This was his good friend. He understood. This man needs something. Now we don't know how often he visited with this family, this trio of, of beloved friends of his, but we do know that on occasion he could go there. He could rest from the requirements and the responsibilities of this world. He could... Take a break with those that He loved. We know He loved them. John also recorded for us that in describing Lazarus, his sister says, He whom thou lovest is sick. Now this is brotherly love. This is phileo love. This is the kind of love that we have for each other. It's a wonderful love. It's a love that Paul commanded for us to have for one another. And we see that great friendly communication and fellowship. And so his good friend had fallen ill. We don't know from what. We don't know the the type of illness that he had, but it was not uncommon in that time period for people to uh, become sick and die at a young age. There wasn't so many uh, ways in which someone could be helped medically. And so the sisters, 
knew it was a serious problem. They wanted help from the one they knew could help. And so they called for Him. I think that's a great point we need to understand. They called for Jesus. They knew Jesus could heal their brother. The one who was sick and dying and obviously at the point of death. And so they called for Him. Isn't that what we have to do when we are spiritually sick? Do we not have to call for Jesus? He's not going to automatically come and cause us to obey the gospel. He's not going to automatically come and, and have us to have an obedient faith following His instruction. He's not going to do that. We have to call upon Him. We have to understand what He wants. We have to be submissive to Him. I think the reader in this instance can understand the action of the seekers. There has to be some action on the part of someone. And it has to be someone in addition to the actions of God. Mary and Martha took steps. They took active steps in trying to gain help for their brother. They called on the man that could help. And he's given us some spiritual steps to heal our spiritual sickness as well. We need to be able to look at the things that happen in the Bible. If we cannot draw some kind of modern day application to this, it doesn't really matter what Lazarus did. It doesn't really matter what his sisters did. After all, they are dead as we speak. We have to be able to draw a conclusion from that. What's the application that Mary and Martha sent for Jesus and asked Him to come and once He got there, we're going to notice in a few moments, there were some steps that those people had to follow. So what's the application? Well, He's not going to come back and raise us from the physical dead, but He will raise us spiritually speaking. There has to be steps by which we follow if we want to gain that. Like the trio in Bethany, we have to do something. It's very simple. Jesus has set forth the beginning principles. He said in John 8 verse 24, If you do not believe who I am, you will die in your sins. I don't think any of us would disagree that faith is a very fundamental part of becoming a Christian. Hebrews 11 verse 6, the writer says, Without faith it is impossible to please Him. But we must do something. We must understand something about Him. I don't think any of us would disagree that we must accept Him as the source of salvation. How do we do that? Well, we have to turn away from the other sources, right? We have to turn away from the world. We have to turn away from the things that are getting in our way. We know that as repentance. I don't think any of us would disagree that we have to have faith, that we have to have repentance, Acts 3.19. Peter said, repent and be converted. Repent and be converted. I don't think any of us would disagree with the statement that we have to acknowledge Jesus Christ in a public fashion. When we look in Matthew chapter 10, verses 31 or 32 through 33, we notice that Jesus said, if you will acknowledge me, and I'm paraphrasing, if you will acknowledge me before my, uh, before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father. But if you do not acknowledge me, if you deny me before men, he said, I will deny you before my Father. And we see that unfold throughout the process of the history of the 
early church in the book of Acts. We see the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 verse 37 making that statement, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now remember, Philip was teaching him from Isaiah chapter 52, and it says that he taught him Jesus. So whatever teaching is involved in teaching Jesus, it has at least two things involved in it. Aside from hearing the Word, there is confession. He said, see, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And he said, if thou believest, thou mayest. He said, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Confession. A public confession. A second part in that passage of teaching Jesus is that they both went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and Philip baptized him. At least two things are involved in teaching Jesus. Now, when we put the Bible together and we look at this process that He has put forth, we can look at Acts chapter 2 and we can say, okay, you have to hear. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their hearts, Acts 2.37. And they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Acts 2.38, Peter said, repent. So repentance is necessary. I don't think we disagree with that. And be baptized for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But that's what Jesus said in Matthew 16, 15 and 16, right? He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Now I want us to understand. Let's break that passage down for just a moment. We have to understand what the Lord was talking about. He's talking about two different things. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He's talking about something else too. He that believeth not shall be damned. See, that's what we want. We want to be saved. We want to believe in Jesus. We want to be obedient to Him. We don't want to disbelieve in Him and lose our souls. See, he's talking about two things. How do we be saved? Faith and baptism. How do we be lost? Well, don't believe and you won't carry out any of the other requirements either. Then, of course, I don't think any of us would disagree that we have to remain steadfast in righteous living for God. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 22. Be steadfast and you shall gain life. One thing that should be prominent in our minds as we study the happenings in Bethany is the great faith that this family had in Christ. They understood that He was the source. Do you notice that when word was sent to Jesus, they didn't say, Lord, come back and save our brother. They simply made the statement, the one you love is sick. He didn't have to be there physically, did He, to save Lazarus. He didn't have to be there physically. They simply knew that He needed to know about it. When it was declared to Jesus that His good friend Lazarus was sick, I want us to notice, He made a very controversial decision. His decision was that He chose to stay where He was instead of immediately going to the bedside of His friend. Now we know that He loved Him. We read about that in John 11 verse 5. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Why did He stay? Well, it was a controversial decision. It, it, it was confusing to those who knew Him, no doubt. It was confusing. They understood how much He loved this family. They knew what He was capable of doing, so why not go save the man? 
Now this idea of love in John 11 verse 5, it's not the phileo love, it's not brotherly love. This is agape love. This is the highest form of love. Sometimes it's hard to understand that form of love, isn't it? Isn't it hard to understand when Jesus said, love your enemies? Well, when we read that, we think about it and we think, well, I can't, I can't, how can I love someone? We, we misunderstand that word love. We're thinking of brotherly love. Well, it's hard to want to spend time in fellowship with someone that wants to kill you, right? It's hard to want to go to a, to a Muslim nation and spread the gospel to them knowing that they want to kill you for it. It's hard to have a good fellowship with that. But see, that's not the love he's talking about. He's talking about a love for the greater good. Giving someone what they need whether we like them or not. Spreading the gospel to a nation that hates Christianity. That's good for them. So we're going to do it. That's agape love. It's not brotherly love. Now hopefully it can manifest itself in brotherly love at some point. We're talking about the love that's good for them. He loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, but He wasn't going to go bring Lazarus from his deathbed. Why? Because agape love. He was doing what was best for everybody involved. So let's talk a little more about that. After waiting two more days, Jesus went to the home of His friends. Why would He wait so long? He surely could have raised Lazarus. He didn't have to be there physically. We read about that in the Bible, don't we? We read about simply by a word spoken, He brought the widow of Nain's son back from the death beer. By simply reaching forth and holding the hand of Jairus' daughter, she raised up and, and she was brought back to life. We see that. He didn't have to be there physically. So why didn't he go? Because he was carrying out the greater plan. He was carrying out what God wanted him to carry out. He was showing agape love to everyone involved. You know, when we read this account and we come to the, that, that very famous verse that when I was in school and we had to answer roll call, we always had to do it with a verse. And in some classes you could just choose your own verse. How often do you think we heard Jesus wept? A lot, right? So much that, that our instructors had to say, you can't use that verse anymore. But when we come to that statement in this passage, Jesus wept, we need to pause a minute. And we need to understand what death and dying and sickness brings about. It brings about despair, doesn't it? Sickness brings about despair. How often have you walked into the room of someone that was bed fast, they couldn't get up, they could still speak to you, but what kind of a life is that? That's a despairing life, is it? That's a life that brings sadness. The end result of sickness is often death. The end result of spiritual sickness is always death. We ought to despair over that. Christ allowed the physical process of death to unfold in the life of Lazarus. He allowed that to affect that man, his good friend. But why? So he could establish the fact that not only could he raise a physical man from death, he could raise a spiritual man from death also. He didn't allow Lazarus to die because he didn't love him. He allowed Lazarus to die because he did love him, but not just him, everyone else around there. Agape love. Do you think for a moment that, 
that Jesus had a very close personal fellowship relationship with everyone that was there? No, I wouldn't think so. He may not have even known some of them who were there as far as in a social setting, but He did love them at no end. He loved them. And He did it for them. He asked Martha. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in Me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in Me shall never die. Believest thou this? John eleven twenty five through 26 See, that's right after she said, Lord, he's been dead for four days. His body is decaying. We can't bring him forth. Now, think about that. The widow of Nain's son had just died. Someone might say, well, and they have. He was unconscious. He was in some sort of a coma. And then just so happened, he woke up. He wasn't really dead. Someone says, well, he went to the bedside of Jairus' daughter and, and he grabbed her by the hand and said, Maiden, uh, arise, get up. And they say, well, she may have had a fever and she wasn't responsive, but she wasn't really dead. You can't say that about Lazarus, can you? He's been in the tomb for four days. Lord, he stinks. Why did Jesus wait for it? He wanted to prove to the world who he was. He could bring a man back from the grave that was in the decaying process. If you can do that, you can raise someone that's spiritually dead. It proved that he was a man of God. Let's not let the sadness and despair be lost upon us by those who remained. It is a sad thing to lose someone, but think about if if you lose them and they're not saved, they're not Christians, they're not in a safe position. You know, that's... That's a terrible thought, isn't it? But we need to think of those who have gone on also. It's not only bad that we lose someone, and we've all got members of our family who were not believers in God, who were not obedient to Christ, and they've gone on into eternity. But we need to think of another aspect of this. What about those who have gone on? You know what they don't want? Us to join them there. Because they realize now that they were wrong. When we look at Luke 16, 28, we read about the rich man. He was in torments. He had lifted up his eyes being in torments. He looked at and he saw Lazarus the far off. And he asked Abraham to send Lazarus that he might dip his finger in water and drop a, drop a drop of water upon his tongue to cool him because he was tormented in these flames. He said he can't do that. There's a great gulf fixed. He said, well, send him back into the world. I've got five brethren. I don't want them to join me here. He knew in that life he was a selfish, ungodly man and his brethren were exactly the same way. He didn't want them to come and be in torments, ultimately being in hell eternally. He said, send Lazarus. Tell them, don't join me here. He says he can't go back. He can't go back. They have Moses and the prophets. If they won't listen to the written word, they won't listen to a man come back from the dead. Is that true? Is that true? Was he telling it right? If someone came back from the dead right now and stood before us, would we believe him? Would we want to turn our lives over to God? Is that how we gain salvation? Is that how we gain faith? No, that's not how we do it. Let's go back to our passage. John chapter 11, we look at the whole chapter. What did those Pharisees and Jews want to do after Lazarus walked out of that grave after being in there for four days? 
Let's kill him again and kill the one that brought him back to life. It didn't change a thing in their minds. They still hated God. They still hated Lazarus and those followers of Jesus. It doesn't matter if we see someone that's dead. Sickness of Lazarus brought about his summons. I want us to understand, though, there was some preparation that first took place before he was brought out of the grave alive. We have to make some preparation in this life if we want to be spiritually brought out of the grave. Here's what we need to understand. Christ will not do for us what we can do for ourselves. Not going to happen. He never has done that. What did He tell those standing next to the tomb? John 11, verse 39. We're talking about the man that created heaven and earth. Hebrews chapter 1. We're talking about the man who had raised people from the dead. We're talking about a man who fed people with two fish and a few loaves, 4,000 and 5,000. We're talking about a man who could walk on the water and not sink up into it. What did He ask them to do? Move the stone. Could He not move the stone? He won't do for us what we can do for ourselves. They could move the stone. And so they did. What did He do next? He told His friend to come out of the grave. And He did. He came out of the grave, but how was He dressed? Well, He was dressed in grave clothes. He was bound up. He had a napkin on His face. What did He say then? When we look in... Chapter 11, verse 44, that should be John instead of Luke. He said, unbind him. Why? You just brought a man out of the grave. Can't you take the grave clothes off of him? He won't do for us what we can do for ourselves. He's not going to do it. He never has done it. And it is not possible for mankind to save himself. Only God can do that. We cannot save ourselves. He'll do that for us. But like moving the stone or unwrapping one from the grave clothes, a person must do what we can do. What can we do in order to be saved? So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. I can listen and study the Word of God. I can do that. God's not going to do that for me. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Romans 1, 16, for it is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, both Jew and Greek. He's not going to appear to me and explain to me personally in a miraculous way what I need to do to be saved. He's not going to do that for me. I can understand that on my own. So I can hear the Word. I can believe it. I can choose to turn away from sin. He's not going to make me do that. I can do that on my own. I can make the good confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's not going to make me do that, and He's not going to do it for me. I can do that on my own. I can walk down into the water just like the Ethiopian eunuch did. I can make that confession. I can be buried in baptism where I come into contact with the blood of Jesus, Romans 6, 3 and 4. He's not going to do that for me. I can do that for myself. I can come up out of that water, Romans 6, 3 and 4, Walking in a new life. Being a new creature. He can do that for me. But I have to go down into the water and have to submit to that. He makes me a new creature. Is the water magic? Is there something special in the water? 
We do not believe in baptismal regeneration. There's nothing magical in that water. It's water. We wouldn't want to drink it, but I imagine if we ran out of water, we probably wouldn't mind drinking it if we got thirsty. It's just water. So what about that saves me? Well, no, let's ask Peter. First Peter 3, 20 and 21. Peter's talking about the example of Noah, how the water raised him up, they were saved. by. He said, the like figure, whereunto baptism doth also now save us. He said, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It's not like taking a bath, but is the answer of a good conscience. What does baptism do for us? Peter says it saves us. He says it gives us a good conscience. We can do that. It's like taking the stone away. We can do that. Jesus will not do for us what we can do for ourselves. Can Jesus forgive any sin if it's repented? Absolutely. The answer is yes. And when we are obedient, when we take away the stone, we remove the grave clothes, we can understand the power of Jesus. We can understand that. With a loud voice, He said, Lazarus, come forth. And He did. He walked right out of that grave. Now that's not going to be the last time that we read about these words, and we'll hear them one day. In the last day, He's going to bring forth everybody. Either it will be a resurrection to life, or it will be a resurrection to death and destruction, depending upon our obedience, depending on whether or not we took the stone away, whether we did what we could do, in order to be obedient to Christ. What's the end result going to be? Are we going to come forth in glory or are we going to come forth in destruction? Christ said, or or excuse me, James said, that we can lose the resurrection of life, but we can gain it back. There is still hope. He said, James 5.16, that if we sin as Christians... We can pray to God for, to forgive us and He will. We already know how to get into Christ. There's only two places in the whole Bible that specifically tells us how to get into Christ. Galatians 3, 26 and 27 and Romans 6, 3 and 4. We are baptized into Christ. That's how we get into That's removing the stone. That's taking off the death clothes. I want us to remember, today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow. It's time to make a decision. And we're always faced with this every day of life. Time to make a decision. Are we going to live for Jesus? Are we going to ask Him to save us and then do our part in that? Because He will. But as you ponder this question, Jesus is calling. Take away the stone as we stand and as we sing.